1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Jana Byers, your host, and I'm here today with Paul Robichaux, professor of English at Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut, to talk about his new book, Pan, The Great God's Modern Return. Just out 2021 with Reaction Books. Hi, Paul. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Ah, you know, absolutely well. I got to read a really cool book this morning. So I spent my day uh, with a great yeah. book. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah, was, you know, it's a really nice way to start the, to spend a day. Um, so the speaking of, you know, this really great book, the first thing I want to sort out is how you came to write it. So I got to tell you, you know, when I do these, it's usually very clear to me when I'm getting ready to talk to an author, I take a look at their CV and their publications. And I'm like, oh, yeah, clear trajectory, dissertation, publications, career, book under discussion. Your path is not as easy for me to sort out, however. Uh, so I want to ask some questions to kind of get to this. So first off, you're a poet, yeah? I um
1: I I am. I don't I don't know if I would call myself that. I think that um I have published some poems. I'm I'm still writing. I'm I'm trying to put together uh, a sort of longer thing. Um and uh, you know like a lot of aspiring uh poem writers, I'm I'm sending stuff out and occasionally you know, occasionally get an acceptance. So, uh, so, so that's, uh, that's kind of that side of things. Um, and, uh, my, you know, my academic background, I, I started out, uh, in English and I wrote on, um, uh, uh, Anglo-Welsh poet and painter named David Jones, who's not really well-known um, on this side of the Atlantic here in North America, but um, he's a really fascinating writer and um, he draws a lot on uh, Celtic myth and Arthurian legend and so on. So I've always had a real fascination with, with myth and the way myths are kind of adapted and reimagined, um, and, you know, made contemporary for their time. Um, and um, I, I had, uh, I guess I, I had been, um, getting a little frustrated I think with academic publishing. Um I I teach a lot at my college. Um it takes a very long time to even put a, a relatively short article together for me. And um I felt like I wanted to to bring something a little more creative to my kind of prose writing. Um and I happen to be reading um uh, some D.H. Lawrence, just really for pleasure, and uh, was thinking about Pan and the, the way he brings Pan into some of his stories and essays and things, and in some interesting ways. And I think that that connected for me with um, Graham Green. Uh, sorry, Kenneth Graham's *Wind in the Willows*, which was one of my favorite books growing up, and *The Piper at the Gates of Dawn* was always a really magical kind of experience for me reading. And um, I just got to thinking it would be really interesting and, and fun um, to write about Pan and kind of trace out the way he's been imagined and uh, uh, thought about over over the centuries. And no one had really written a book, uh, a, a full-length book on Pan since the 1960s, um, looking at his role in literature and so on. So it seemed like it might be a fun project to, to undertake. So that's that's kind of how I came to that
2: yeah this makes sense. I can see that. and I know like when you're thinking about how the medieval and ideas of the medieval are used in kind of twentieth century poetry, there's something natural there that works. I want to put a pin in Kenneth Graham. I want to come back to him in a little bit. Um, yeah, but so uh um let's I would like to start a little bit back um. And, and I want to go, um, like kind of one of the things that struck me here is like the wide variety of sources, you know, Kenneth Graham, which is pretty modern, but starting with it right. Um, and Robert Graves, this poet, Zoe Brigley, who I know now because of your work, one of the most important books of my lifetime, Jitterbug Perfume, right? Like is a very cherished book to me. So there's this massive array from the kind of like the dawn of writing until yesterday. Um of just writing that you used plus a number of other like visual sources and plays and et et cetera how did you go by go about selecting this massive like these works from the massive amounts of pan in the world that's
1: uh that's a really good question um so i think uh one really helpful starting point was uh was a book I sort of alluded to, Patricia Merivale's book, *The Goatfoot God*, which came out in 1969, um, and she has a, uh, she has a really wonderful bibliography, and she talks about a lot of things. Um, but I also, uh, so I, I drew upon the the texts uh and writers that she talks about but i also followed up some some hints i guess in her book where she doesn't really go into a lot of detail and um it required a a a fair bit of of research and some of it you know was done during the the lockdown and everything so i relied at at certain points on um uh, on google uh and uh you know but also um just kind of drawing on some of the some of the, the books and writers I was I was familiar with and I found interesting, um, and I you know there I was writing to a word count so I couldn't include absolutely everything so I tried as much as possible to to, to find a balance between. Uh, you know, myth and literature and painting and um, getting, getting some geographical uh, range as well. Um, and uh, tr- aiming, particularly as we get closer to the present, aiming for, uh, you know, some gender balance too, in terms of uh, the writers um, and so on. So, um, yeah, it was, it was a lot of reading, a lot of kind of following up hints and footnotes and, and things like that. Um, but it really was, it was a lot of fun. It was really fascinating seeing all all the different ways and forms, uh, you know, in which Pan had been, been imagined. So, um, it was, yeah, a lot of reading around, a lot of Google searching and and just kind of really immersing myself in that whole world. I can, um, I, yeah,
2: I can imagine a lot of rabbit holes. Uh, a you lot read of this? rabbit holes. Sure yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, you're going to get to comic books there weren't, you mentioned comic books. so yeah.
1: yeah. And that was fun. I mean, I, you know, I collected, uh, I, I collected comics back in the eighties the and, uh, it's been a long time. I still, I still have my collection, uh, somewhere around here, but, uh, it was kind of fun to kind of jump back in and, um, read, read some of those classic wonder woman stories from, from the 1980s. And, uh, you know, I, and, uh, and again, I think, you know, Pan, the, the really fascinating, one of the fascinating things about Pan is that he's always had this kind of wide, wide appeal. It's never, even though the classics generally have been associated with kind of elite culture, you know, with really, you know, educated men in, in the past and so on, Pan has always kind of crossed over that. And he's... Um, you know, he, he for for a long time he's been part of popular culture, whether through you know fiction in the, the later nineteenth and early twentieth centuries, or you know more to getting into our present day, the world of comic books uh, and things like that. I think he's he is that kind of he is that kind of god that you know he kind of crosses over boundaries and and uh, has a very wide appeal. Uh, I think.
2: That thing about him—that he crosses boundaries, like he's so clearly—he, I mean, he's this—he's a Sylvan god, right? He's a, the god of—he's a very in nature god, but he makes this this crossover into high culture, and that's one of the things that I found most fascinating about him while reading your book. So that's—and that's something I really want us to explore. So I think, like, you know, let's start there at the beginning. Where does he come from? Like, when? When do we first hear about Pan? Where is he, and what's he like?
1: Yeah. Um, cool. So he. He he's first heard of in um, in ancient Arcadia, and that's um, Arcadia is a, a region in the Peloponnese. It's kind of a wild region. Um, it's mountainous. Agriculture is challenging there, and um, the ancient Arcadians were looked upon by the other Greeks as being um, older than all the other Greek nations and, and peoples and things. And uh, the Greeks described them as older than the moon, and they were. Uh, believed to speak a, a much older form of Greek. And um, they had some habits that the Greeks regarded as, as really kind of outlandish. They ate acorns, and um, they relied on herding sheep and goats rather than uh, farming to the extent that other Greeks did. Now, they did have towns and things. They weren't Sort of living out there in the woods, but the Greeks regarded them. The other Greeks regarded them as really backwards and kind of out there, um, and uh, they don't seem to have written very much down, apart from some some inscriptions. And the first um, the first Arcadian uh, references to Pan are uh, little bronze figurines of shepherds um, that are dedicated to Pan, you know, thanking him for you know healing or gifts or something like that. Um, and although we think of shepherds. You know, as as you know, perhaps kind of poor figures out there in the countryside. These bronze figures um, are very well carved. Uh, bronze was uh, fairly expensive, and so it suggests that, in fact, um, some of these Arcadian shepherds were were fairly well off. But beyond beyond that, we don't actually have any visual des- depictions of Pan very early on. Um, It's really not until the fifth century when Pan's worship leaves Arcadia that we start to get visual depictions of him. And we see him uh, on vases, Uh, where he is portrayed in a recognizable way with goat's legs and hooves. He has horns. He has the torso of a man. Um, But the very early ones uh, depict him as having a goat's face, which kind of that varies over time. Sometimes his face is very human in ancient sculpture. Sometimes it's more goat-like. But uh, again, it's not until his cult leaves Arcadia that we start to get these images of him um, and so there is a question about that whether the Arcadians thought of him as having this appearance or if it's a kind of outside point of view on Pan that really wants to connect him to that wor- world of herding and pastoral life um,
2: sure so, like that's, a, that's more of a commentary on the, what the rest of the Greeks thought about the Arcadians
1: maybe yeah and, and then after that after that we have arcadian representations of pan um you know there's a really wonderful uh, bronze image of him with his eyes over his brows and he's clearly watching over a flock you know we might imagine him on a mountaintop or something looking at the sheep but he really seems to have been uh, a protector of the flocks and and a healer and uh and and a really kind of positive uh a positive force, but he he very quickly um, acquires associations with fear and panic, um, and our word panic does come from from pan, and it's that sudden experience of terror, right? That you know we live in a, a time where you know panic attacks uh, are something that a lot of uh, modern people experience in response to the uh, very challenging world we live in today. Um, but that feeling of panic is kind of a, it's a primordial Pan experience. Um, and it may, well, uh, it may well go back to um, his earliest origins, although it's, it's recorded a, a little later. Um, so that's, that's kind of where Pan starts out as, uh, you know, the, the goat foot god, the protector of flocks, um, who really on becomes associated with this feeling of panic. Um, and, uh, and his cult kind of spreads from there and eventually uh, spreads throughout the ancient world. Um, over time.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, so right away, nature, but kind of scary. Well, nature is, I guess. Um, yeah. And when do we get the pipes? The pipes uh, the pipes appear
1: uh, visually very early on. Um, he, he's often depicted holding his pipes. Um, one of the interesting things about Pan, and it's something that makes him a little different from the other Greek gods is there aren't a lot of myths surrounding him. So we don't really have any idea what uh, precisely the stories were that were told about Pan early on. He's he's kind of on the periphery. Probably the most famous myth about Pan, though, is about the pipes, and it's recorded by this Roman poet Ovid in his uh, collection of myths called the Metamorphoses. And in it, um, Pan is smitten uh, with uh, a young nymph named Syrinx and um, in his uh, pursuit of her, she flees to a river, uh, and uh, the nymphs who live in the river help her out. They they transform her into a reed, and Pan reaches for her, and she suddenly turns into a reed. And he's, uh, he's frustrated, um, and he's sad, and um, he cuts the reed, and he makes the reed into uh, his famous pipes. um, And that's the origin of those. And he plays uh, a sorrowful, melancholy uh, kind of song that is uh, traditionally associated with uh, the music that that Pan plays. Um, And if you ever hear, um, and you can go online and, and find contemporary examples of people playing the the syrinx or pan pipe it is a very haunting uh, very kind of melancholic and, and even eerie sort of instrument and and it does seem to to fit well with pan
2: yeah and there is something kind of mystical and that's another like enchanting and sorceling, which is the thing that sh- that comes up a lot as well that, that makes sense there. there okay, is so we have him in like the the classical world we see this and we have a grasp on him and he he, gen- he kind of disappears for the for the general audience in the middle ages mostly yeah
1: yeah uh he does he's um uh he, the there are pagan gods who sort of survive through the middle ages you know Ch- chaucer in his uh, canterbury tales he you know in, in the knight's tale we have references to saturn and uh several other gods but um pan is not one of those gods who um is much remembered in the middle ages. Um, it may be that his associations with lustfulness and um, uh, those kinds of connections made him a little, a little too uh, earthy and pagan for uh, medieval Christian writers, but he, um, he, he doesn't resurface really until the Renaissance where there's a, a rediscovery of, of pagan antiquity and all its, its kind of richness. Um,
2: yeah. You, you mentioned a couple of like manuscript drawings, but that's going to be, you know, monu- Those are going to be monks with access to a different sort of literature.
1: Yeah. And right. There's a really fascinating one. Um, there's a manuscript image that shows the, the 12 tribes of Israel kind of standing around in the desert. And, and on the other side that, you know, because they're traveling and so taking a break. Uh, and, and on the other side of the image, there's a, a palm tree and a monkey, And below the palm tree is, is our friend Pan. And he's, he's standing there and I I believe he has his pipes with him. And it's not, it's not really clear what's going on. Um, One, one interpretation of that image is that the, the monkey uh, for medieval people was a symbol of lust. And so Pan might represent the temptations of the flesh. Um, I think the more likely interpretation is just that it's the wilderness you know, and that's kind of the, you know, the biblical story of the twelve tribes wandering through the desert is a story of wandering through the wilderness, um, and Pan is the god of the wilderness, and uh, and so he makes his little appearance there. But this is a very rare appearance. Um, and apart from one other image where he's uh, standing beside uh, Venus, the god the goddess of love and sex and all those things, um, he really doesn't appear. I, I wasn't able to trace any other uh, appearances of Pan in the Middle Ages. Um, so that's, that's really about it.
2: Yeah. And that is somehow even more interesting. Like no images? Cool. Tons of images? Okay. But two of them is, you know, and probably there's a couple more maybe out there that we haven't found, but that's very interesting. He's got some cachet, but really limited.
1: It it suggests to me that it's not that uh, medieval writers who were overwhelmingly, you know, in the church, um, particularly in the, the earlier parts of the Middle Ages, it's not that they didn't know about Pan, but that they didn't want to dwell on, on right. Pan. You know, Pan's
2: best left in the past.
1: Yeah. yeah. He's best left mm-hmm. in the past. I think that's fair. Yeah. Yeah.
2: But then he makes a strong comeback in the Renaissance, right? Art and the philosophy, back to high culture again. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, yeah. The, the, the Renaissance um, kind of rediscovers this other side of Pan, um, which also has uh, you know deep roots in the ancient world, and it has to do with uh, a confusion or perhaps even a punning um, on Pan's name, which uh, Pan's name, which is uh, all. Um so Pan's actual name derives from uh, a root uh meaning pasture or to pasture. So it has these really deep pastoral associations. But there's another Greek word, uh pan, and it's familiar with us today. It's the the root of pandemic, you know. Uh it, it means everything, it means all. Um and because they're they're kind of homonyms, um and the ancient Greeks liked that kind of word play, but they may also have thought the two words were were really closely related they identified pan as the god of all so he kind of acquires this second identity he's the god of shepherds and flocks and terror and lust and all those things but he's also this cosmic god of everything and then um in in later antiquity different schools of philosophy kind of adapted this and they really elaborated uh on uh, on this and so uh, there's an ancient Orphic hymn uh, that members of a mystery cult uh, devoted to Orpheus, uh, some somebody in that wrote it, and it it kind of enumerates all the different aspects of the universe in connection with uh, the different parts of Pan's body. You know, so maybe his his horn is the moon, um, the spots on his cloak are the stars, and things like that. And that's really the Pan that's rediscovered in the Renaissance. It's this cosmic pan who's god of of everything and um he's not he's not as earthy he's not as as physical and he's not as connected to the wild as uh this other side of pan but you know the renaissance humanists um in Florence and elsewhere, they were they were intellectuals. They were philosophers, and they were intrigued by this figure of Pan as a god who could embody everything, all of the elements, all of the elements of the cosmos, uh, the stars, the sky, the planets, and everything else. Um, and and so th- this becomes um, this becomes another important aspect in in Pan's identity that that later writers will return to. This a
2: great. Yeah, he's a very complex character, and then let's just add another dimension of kind of what I'm considering like interesting weirdness is that he gets linked with the death of Christ sometime. Yes,
1: yeah, um, right. We have to mention uh, the really the strangest uh, and maybe the most distinguishing about thing about Pan's whole ancient career, which is he dies. You know, I. Uh, other- other ancient gods um, died and came back to life. I mean, Dionysus does this in his mythology. Uh, Adonis is killed and he comes back every year and he dies. And, you know, there there are some affinities to the way, uh, you know, Christ's story was, was adapted early on with those. But Pan just dies. Um, and this goes back to a report that Plutarch, who uh, appears to be a writer who, uh, you know, ha- had a great deal of integrity and checked his sources and everything else. And he reports that a sailor, um, in the time of the Emperor Tiberius, uh, was on his boat and he heard a voice call out to him, and it said, uh, "Tamas, the name of the sailor, go tell the world that Pan is dead." Essentially, and he then heard, you know, this cry that Pan was dead, um, and so. He was very shaken up by this, um, but he uh, he spread the word and um, it, it reached the ears of the Emperor Tiberius, who was so concerned to hear that Pan had died that he actually sent out some, uh, some of his counselors to investigate this. And they concluded that uh, Pan had died, uh, in fact. Um, and that's kind of the whole story, except In reality, worship of Pan did not die out. And a century later, a Greek writer is visiting, named Pausanias, is visiting uh, ancient Greece and he finds Pan's shrines are all still open. Uh, Locals still claim to hear the sound of Pan's pipes eerily playing in in the wilderness and so on. Um, And so this question of whether Pan really did die also uh, enters into this tradition. Um, Later, Christian writers uh we took the death of pan as in, in a couple of different ways. one was maybe the obvious way that it shows the pagan world is dying now that you know jesus is 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 born and, and all of that um, but the other way was uh, a little more generous towards paganism in that it it took it as uh, pan as a symbol of Christ that in some sense pan and Christ were identical as though this was a way for pagans to slowly understand uh you know the the reality of, of Christianity and so forth, um, but by and large, uh, Christian writers tended to classify Pan along with the other pagan gods as as demons, and so his death was sort of vindication of their their
2: worldview. Yeah, yeah, fair, which makes some sense. But yeah, let's. Um, I, I, I'm glad you brought that up. I might have forgotten to ask about it he dies which as far as i know is like that part of the definition of god is eternal right like being eternal yeah not bad. yeah no. Very and, and there's no, and there there
1: there are a lot of weird things about the story um to to me one of the most obvious is there's no account given of how he died or you know any details at all um some writers like robert graves and i don't i don't I don't know ancient Greek, so I can't comment on this. But but some writers, like ancient uh, sorry Robert Graves, have have argued that in fact uh, there's a misunderstanding, and that it it, uh, it was not saying great Pan was that uh, at all, um, but it was rather worshippers of a god named Tamas who happened to have a very similar name to the sailor who were simply saying that Tamas had died, and Tamas was one of those gods like Adonis who just kind of you know, returned every year. So it may have been some, some confusion. Um, that's at the root of all that.
2: Or symbolically, you know, that we've got this pan depicts kind of all of nature, nature is dead and paganism is, dead. this makes sense. Yeah. Um, so post Renaissance, he's really embraced by the romantics. Why is that? Like how so and why?
1: Well, I think the, the main reason that romantics embraced pan is that he is the god of nature and the romantic movement um was really uh, you know an opening up to nature and a turn towards nature as a source of meaning as a source of beauty um as a way for uh as a way for people to to really discover their authentic selves um and so pan as the god of nature has some real importance there um because he is this kind of mysterious embodiment of uh the world of nature um and w- one of the one of the things i was was sort of fascinated by uh as i was reading the romantic writers on pan is that they they really tended towards the more philosophical pan um you don't get a lot of romantic writers portraying uh you know the goat-footed god uh lustily pursuing nymphs through the woods or anything like that. Um, they they really take a, a view of Pan as, you know, the embodiment of nature, as the embodiment of the cosmos. Um, but I think one, one thing that's consistent is the sense of of awe that uh, we experience in, in Pan's presence and the way, you know, an encounter with Pan um, takes us outside ourselves and really brings us uh, brings us to a recognition that nature is other, you know, it's other than us. And yet at the same time, we're, we're a part of it. You know, it's like, it's a recognition that we're part of something much greater than ourselves and that, um, our, our ordinary sense of ourselves is, um, is very limited, you know, it's isolating. Um, so, so pan is a way of kind of connecting with the wider natural world in
0: some sense.
2: Um, but the, and then this theme of awe that is running through, so let's stop in now with Kenneth Graham. All right. And the author who, you know, who listeners you all know is the author of the wind in the willows, right? Which is another incredibly personal favorite book of mine as a child too. So what's going on? What's his, when does he, he starts his relationship with Pan a little earlier, right? 1894. Um, yeah. Right. Uh,
1: so, so Kenneth Graham. Um, he's um, he writes a collection of kind of miscellaneous pieces. He gathers them together in a book called Pagan Papers. And um, g- g- you know Graham, Graham clearly comes across as a kind of uh, almost a nature mystic. Without too much mysticism, I think in that in that collection. But he's really he likes the pagan world. He likes the sensuality. He likes the nat- the the natural world and so on. Um, and at the time uh, Graham is writing in the eighteen eighties and and uh, in the decades that follow, Pan has also become a god who's really embraced by uh, gay writers in particular um, as embodying, you know, kind of an alternate. Sexuality, um, because Pan uh, in the ancient world, Pan uh, pursued, you know, men and women, or nymphs and, and humans, um, uh, m- uh, males as well as females, and all that. He he was like he was almost pansexual in the sense that we you know we use that term today, and so um, Pan became a figure that uh, gay writers kind of embraced as um, as a symbol of alternate forms of sexuality and so on. And Kenneth Graham's sexuality is a real mystery. Um, he clearly pr- preferred the company of men. Uh, some recent biographers uh, suggest that, you know, he had some long-term relationships with men and, um, you know, even lived with uh, with one partner for many years. Um, there's there's some controversy about those things, but he, he he's clearly drawn to Pan at a time when Pan has these really charged uh, associations. Um, and uh, in in the pagan papers, Pan appears as a very rural, very English kind of god. You know, the sort of the sort of god you might run into on the village green or down at the pub or something like that, right? So he acquires this other close connection with with Englishness as well. Um, and then in in Wind in the Willows, maybe we'll get we'll focus on that here. Um, Graham Green, uh, sorry Kenneth Graham, had written the book, and um, he added this chapter in. Uh, the piper at the gates of dawn after the wind in the willows had been complete, uh, completed. And in it, um, the water rat and the mole are looking for a baby otter who has gone missing and they're rowing down the river uh, searching for this baby otter and they're suddenly overcome uh, by the sense of awe and mystery as um, this music, this these distant pipes begin playing. And they enter into a kind of kind of mystical state as they arrive at this this island. Yeah, right. And right, they're and they're overcome by awe and wonder. And they discover uh, a figure who's never named as Pan. He's just named as the Piper at the Gates of Dawn. And there he is as the sun rises, um, and the little baby otter is uh between his hooves. Um he's protecting them. And they realize that this figure, the Piper, is dangerous he's powerful but he's also a protector and um they bring the otter home and and sort of live happily ever after and they have no memory of this encounter uh with the piper at the gates of dawn um but it is it is a remarkable chapter and you really get a feeling for uh graham's kind of pagan mysticism in this chapter um and as I mentioned in the book, in a lot of American editions of Wind in the Willows, this chapter is expurgated. It's just not there. And, uh, you know, there, there is a lot of conservative religious feeling in the United States. And the, the Piper at the Gates of Dawn is unapologetically, inexcusably <laughs> pagan. It's absolutely
2: no other interpretation. <laughs>
1: yeah. Um, and it has the advantage from a censor's point of view of being detachable from the story because it's not really integral to the plot. Um, and so I, one of the things that's fascinating about it is that, that, uh, Kenneth Graham included it, you know, he had a complete story. It's not really necessary for the plot, but, um, for many readers, including myself, uh, growing up as, as a child reading the book, it is the most magical, uh, part of the the story. It's in some ways, it's the heart of the book, even though the main plot is about, you know, the crazy antics of Mr. Toad and his car and his friends trying to stop him. Um, so it's it's really extraordinary what what he does there.
2: Yeah, there's something about it. So I read it today for the first time. Um, the book I had as a kid did not include it. I read about it in your book, so then I purchased it on and read the chapter today for the first time. Uh, so I'm, I'm like newly excited about it. I've, I've, I'm like, I feel like, you know, I was like 12 or something and reading it for the first time, but I love, uh, I love the, the way it allows us to get like more into the relationship, that incredible, beautiful, um, homosocial interaction between mole and rat, you know, and how much they love each other. Um, and they're like good buddies and they're off on this adventure. And how mole can't hear him at first, like rat hears him and mole follows, which is some is significant somehow, I'm sure. Um,
1: yeah, yeah. Um, right. And I think that, uh, you know, there's homosocial bonds between the animals and the wind in the willows is, is really an all-male world. It's a world of male friendships, male kind of intimacies. And uh, and there are some contemporary interpretations of the book read it as a kind of coded gay novel um in some ways but i think regardless of of how we read it it is a homosocial book it's about men's relationships with each other and so pan um pan is this deep incredible meaningful experience that really brings and and sort of symbolizes this deep relationship this deep uh affection that uh mole and rat have for each other absolutely really yeah.
2: sweet and the the awe and fear they feel which is really compelling um you know which is the you're the kind of how you get us to almost the end of the book is this uh, you talk about him as this powerful and familiar occult figure which is the way he spans kind of across time as well
1: yeah um right and the the occult side of Pan um, is a really fascinating uh, a really fascinating one. And I, I think a whole book really could be devoted to, to that side of him. Um, we might trace its origins to the Orphic hymn that I mentioned. This this ancient way of invoking the god. The Orphic hymns are really interesting because they begin with a little uh, sort of note uh, talking about lighting the incense and doing all of these things. So they were clearly ritual uh, poems. They were ritual invocations of the ancient gods and. So the Orphic hymn to Pan is an invocation of uh, the god Pan, um, and in in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, there's an occult revival. Um, the most famous organization being the the Order of the Golden Dawn, um, and lots of people belong to that. Uh, the poet W. B. Yeats um, and um, the Beast himself, Aleister Crowley, uh, uh, you know, being among the most most famous members. Um, and they are really connecting back to Renaissance traditions of high magic, which in turn were really reviving um, the kinds of magical practices, ritual practices that were engaged in in the ancient world. Um, and uh, Crowley in particular was attracted to Pan, um, partly for some of the the homosocial reasons we were, we were talking about earlier. Um, but also because of the way Pan combines this sort of lustfulness uh, with uh, this kind of cosmic power. Um, and so Pan becomes a really central figure in um, the writings of Aleister Crowley and, and his, um, his system of magic that he called Thelema, uh, one of the stages of which is to enter into the night of Pan where the ego is shattered and all of this. And um, he himself conducted uh, numerous rituals uh, involving Pan, including a, a famous one, um, in, in the desert with uh, his uh, kind of acolyte uh, Victor Newberg, um, which involved uh, performing a, a sexual rite uh, to connect with the god Pan and enable him to continue this larger magical ritual he was conducting. Um, but Curley was only one of many. Um, another prominent modern uh, thinker in occult circles is Dion Fortune, and she Uh, was also a member of the Golden Dawn, kind of in its later, uh, more fragmented form. But she wrote a fascinating novel called uh, The Goat-Footed God, and she also uh, developed her own ritual, uh, and the ritual and the novel are, are connected to, to invoke the presence of Pan. And so, um, so for these kinds of modern occultists, Pan is a source of esoteric hidden power rooted deep in the natural world and the cosmos. A power that can be invoked through ritual, through ceremony, through words uh, and language. Um, and that's a really uh, kind of central part of of the modern occult tradition but he also has an important role in uh the revival of witchcraft that starts in the 1950s with gerald gardner and uh this this notion of the horned god uh that goes back to a writer named margaret murray in the early 20th century believed that uh, witchcraft was an ancient cult devoted to the horned god of which pan was just one of many embodiments um murray's Thesis about witchcraft is no longer accepted, but it was very influential in uh, the development of uh, Gerald Gardner's Wicca. And so, the, this horned god of uh, modern witchcraft uh, becomes identified with Pan. And so, all all of those ancient traditions and associations with Pan kind of make their way uh, in, into those uh, more modern kinds of traditions as well. Um, so, yeah, so he's a he's a central figure in, in modern occult thought
2: as well. Um, and the horned God then becomes that, I mean, that's the devil, right? In, in some, there's some linkage there, not all over, but yes. Yeah. Well,
1: yeah. Like, uh, I think like a lot of people uh, who've thought about it, um, I you know my assumption was that uh, the form of the devil, his familiar form, was really just the early church taking over Pan's appearance and saying, look, this powerful pagan god you all love is really just the devil. Um, and what, one of the things I discovered uh, as I was writing was that, in fact, uh, as we talked about earlier, Pan was really absent in the Middle Ages. They They weren't that Interested or concerned about him. And it's really not until the 19th century that you start getting this close identification of the form of Pan. Um, and, uh, and the devil. Um, before that, the devil is usually portrayed as this kind of monstrous assemblage of bits and pieces from all different animals to kind of, I think, to illustrate how unnatural he is, you know, he's, he's rejecting the the natural order of, of things. Um, but it's really not until the 19th century that uh, this identification becomes uh, really strong. And uh, modern writers often play with that. Um, so, you know, the question of whether Pan is is really evil or whether Pan and the devil can be considered in some sense one is really something that that doesn't uh, enter into the, the kind of collective imagination until uh, the 19th and 20th centuries.
2: Yeah. You know, I was thinking about uh, Neil Gaiman has the new the new Sandman is out. Uh, right. And I'm thinking about, um, so Gaiman's been on my mind quite a bit lately, which to be honest, he always is. But I'm thinking about his Sandman, well, like not the Sandman, his version of Lucifer as well. And how that, that Lucifer that's so compelling and beautiful and incredibly sexual um, and a little dangerous is very much like a Panish kind of deity as well. He's a really useful character. Yeah, I, well, I think it right. It's,
1: I think it's kind of a two two way street. So we have um, we have some modern portrayals of Pan, which really make him out to be very devilish. Um, there's a, a wonderful. Uh, it's available on YouTube. Uh, you can you can watch it. this wonderful uh, scene from uh, a nineteen twenty six film by Rex Ingram. Um, his name has just slipped my mind, but he in it, um, Pan is portrayed as the devil. He's presiding over Hell, and it's you know it's really eerie and, and so on. But I think it's a two way street. We start to see portrayals of the devil as a as a, uh, you know as kind of a, a sexier s- seducer kind of figure, um, a little playful, a little mischievous. Some of those qualities that you know maybe we're we're more closely associated with pan in the past. so there's there's an interesting relationship between those two and um, and and I think it's it's also a relationship that shows the kind of continuing discomfort with pan, right I mean pan is always a disruptive influence. He's always um, outside our day-to-day experience and our, our sense of really normalcy and our Conventional sense of right and wrong, um, so I think in, in a way it makes sense that Pan is um, uh, Pan is connected with the devil in some way. You know that the, that we we realize that the two figures are raising perhaps similar moral questions uh, and uh, questions about our relationship to our own desires, uh, the relationship between sexuality and morality and so on, um, questions that people continue to, to think about and, uh, and, and struggle with a little bit.
2: You know, I, I think that might be the answer to it. Cause this is my final question. The, like the last thing I really wanted to think about is why he, you know, cause where we are with Pan is he's still everywhere. He's, he's more places than he's ever been. Right. So, you know, kind of, what is it? Why are we so fascinated with this character?
1: I think I think we're still fascinated with this character because he is such a transgressive figure, you know. Um, so, some more contemporary portrayals of Pan, uh, you know, taking, you know, for example, a feminist perspective, kind of approaching that, uh, you know, some of the mythology, like his pursuit of syrinx and so on, um, in a more critical way, but but emphasizing the way that. His behavior really is transgressive. Like we can't even the mythology that has, uh, perhaps grown more familiar over time, is really showing Pan as a transgressive, dangerous figure. Um, and I also think that because of Pan's role as a god of the natural world, our current moment um, of climate crisis, of ecological collapse, of the diminishment of the the wild you know, the threat to the Amazon and all, all those kinds of things make him a figure who's really urgently relevant. You know, he is always the embodiment of nature beyond the human. And as human beings facing climate catastrophe, w- we need to come to terms with that. We have to find ways not only to live alongside that, but actually to preserve the wild that centuries ago was was simply a threat Uh to human beings or a mystery now it's become something that we need to really engage with and protect and and value
2: yeah all right great that's an excellent answer um and it, it, it helps me make sense of this very compelling character um so thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me you're very welcome so listeners, you've just been, uh, you've been he- hearing, you've been listening to me talk to Paul Robichaud of Albertus Magnus College about PAN, The Great God's Modern Return Reaction Books 2021. It's available from fine booksellers everywhere. And you can also click through on the link um, at our new books website. All right. Thank you. And ciao.